Welcome to the IFV podcast series. Today's podcast is a Grand Challenge lecture and features Professor Margaret Scheel, AO, Vice-Chancellor of the Queensland University of Technology. Professor Margaret Scheel, AO, has a PhD in Physical Chemistry from the University of New South Wales and is recognised for her distinguished service to science and higher education as an academic administrator through significant contributions to the national research landscape for funding and evaluating research. Her lecture, recorded on Friday the 25th of May, is entitled Backing Australia's Research Ecosystem. We hope you enjoy this IFE Grand Challenge lecture. Thank you for the opportunity to be here and to present a Grand Challenge lecture. Uh, it's uh, one of an, this, a number of um, presentations I've given at QUT since I've been here, but one where I guess I'm um, in, a, in an area and a, in a um, space that, uh, that I've spent quite a lot of time uh, thinking about over a number of years. And, and I uh, called my lecture Backing Australia's Research Ecosystem, in part because those of you in the audience that, that would remember something about the history of Australian research po policy that was that um, there were some critical interventions in and funding interventions in, in Australia's um, research and innovation system in the early 2000s and in the mid 2000s that um, were referred to, and I'll come back to these, as backing Australia's abilities. So I'm part uh, deliberately used this title to uh, start a conversation about what else do we need to do to support uh, Australia's research ecosystem harking back to some of uh, the lessons that we learnt from backing Australia's ability. So I'm going to range over a, a fair range of um, topics here today, in, in, in what, and it's quite dense, so apologies. Um, and I'm going to touch in a small number of vignettes over a number of uh, key points. And the, uh, I'll start by the, the photo for many of you will recognise that Australia's chief scientist introduced the Australia's the International Robotics Conference here in Brisbane on Tuesday, Monday night, Tuesday night. Uh, I'm looking at Gordon, and he highlighted um, this robot, which is a collaboration from uh, of QUT scientists from the Centre of Robotic Vision and also from the uh, Centre of Mathematics. And one of the things that he and it, and it's obviously a robot that is working on the reef um, and identifying and destroying Crown of Thorns starfish. And one of the reasons I liked it once I realised um, that example was there because is in order to do that, you have had to have uh, strong mathematics and uh, capability uh, to, and as well as good technical know-how and collaboration across disciplines. So it encapsulates many of the things that QUT uh, is good at and aspires to do, but also, uh, also the notion that, that to get these kind of achievements, we need a, a rich and well-supported ecosystem. So I'm going to touch a little bit on, on the role of leadership in that, global talent, touch very briefly on different models of research environments, uh, funding where it comes from, where we should be putting it, the role of institutions, uh, individuals, disciplines, transdisciplines, infrastructure, business, government, students, and uh, the sort of nature of the research continuum. And so, sorry to do this to you on a Friday afternoon. Um, and I'm gonna start with leadership and for the, the mass spectrometrists in the audience, this uh, individual will be well known because he's the father of mass spectrometry, which is my discipline. 
uh, JJ Thompson. He's also the discoverer of the electron and a Nobel laureate in physics. And um, he was uh, one of the many directors of many in a succession of extraordinarily successful directors of the Cavendish Laboratory in Cambridge. And Cavendish Laboratory in Cambridge had many notable um, people, including, and so this photo is from 28 when JJ had retired as director and uh, to his left uh, was Ernest Rutherford, who was a New Zealander, who obviously had uh, also a Nobel laureate. Mark Oliphant is in the third or fourth row. row. There's a range of other. And Chadwick went through the, you know, this laboratory. Many of the um, pioneers of physics. And um, I think you could encapsulate, so I, I think of this as the Cavendish, when I talk about models of research environments, this was a model where you got a whole lot of bright people and gave them, uh, put them in, in rooms and laboratories, gave them the space uh, to discover great things. I'm sure JJ wandered around occasionally and said, have you thought about tackling the neutron problem or, or something of that nature? But the other key thing about the Cavendish laboratory at that time and Cambridge was in the late 1890s, they admitted international students. And uh, JJ is quoted in the, um, um, in the history of the Cavendish of saying, the extent to which uh, the intercourse between these men, and they're all men, though there is one woman in that photo, um, the intercourse between these men of, from around the world and the way in which they exchanged ideas and brought fresh uh, thinking to their science cannot be underestimated. So there's, a, you know, there's more than um, leadership there in why ca uh, Cambridge was so successful. And you, know, you go through the history of the Cavendish um, and many, many great people visited there. And you know, it was subsequently there where the American Jim Watson collaborated with Francis Crick and, and uh, Morris Wilkins and others from London to, to deduce the structure of DNA. So it's a rich history. Uh, Niels Bohr, who was a Danish uh, physicist, passed through. And uh, uh, John Byron, who works with me on some of my speeches, he just had to get a creative bit into the talk of, that was mostly about science and pointed out that um, Niels was, Bohr was a contemporary of Billy Joel's grandparents, and um, they would have been proud that Billy Joel uh, benefited from that technology uh, when the compact disc was um, developed and uh, produced uh, over 80 years or so later. But, and the theme here is, of course, there's a very big, often a very big time difference between putting a bunch of bright people in a lab and them having some great ideas and then some technology that may have come later. So whether it's the laser, whether it's um, you know, any, uh, many, many other developments in physics. So that's, I call that the Cavendish model. Then if you think, still staying in Britain because um, many of our research history uh, was formed there and think about what I think I often call the Flory or the Penicillin model, which is research that's been developed and teams that have been developed in response to a big challenge. And in this case, the challenge was uh, the Second World War and the fundamental discovery was um, Fleming's discovery of penicillin. But the key um, piece of making the, this into something that we, we know about was uh, what Flory did, Australian uh, Howard Flory, who was working at Oxford at the time. And he was charged with turning the discovery of penicillin into something that could be used, uh, i.e. a drug, and which became penicillin. And that was absolutely critical to the 
Allies' success in the Second World War and, you know, to for a huge number of uh, lives uh, ever since as um, they synthesised penicillin. And to do that, Flory set out to build an interdisciplinary team. So, Susie, it mightn't look very interdisciplinary when we're talking about physics and chemistry together, but in scientific terms it is. Uh, and he built a team where he looked for the best medicinal chemist, where he looked for physiologists, pathologists. There was the odd woman in there. Uh, as well, and and so that's the sort of you know big problem. Build a team around that problem, uh, and put the resources behind uh, solving it. Both the penicillin example of compact disc and and the many discoveries that came out of the Cavendish and elsewhere, a key element of that is that it takes time from those initial uh, fundamental that initial fundamental science or discovery through to some kind of application, and if we look at the current uh, immunotherapies that are now um, revolutionising much of the way that we treat cancer. And uh, that, that has, at its origins, not only the discoveries of the two Nobel, Australian Nobel laureates, McFarlane Burnett and Peter Doherty, and their collaborators, Peter Medway and Rolf Sinkenau, but many other uh, interventions along the way in terms of resources, people, drug companies and so on. But, uh, Fast forward from you know the original McFarlane Burnett um, Nobel Prize, which is based on work done earlier, and similarly Peter Doherty's Nobel Prize in '95 was based on work done in in 1975 at the ANU, and you end up with my uh, colleague and mentor Ian Chubb uh, on the front page of the Guardian, where he had benefited from the immunotherapy uh, treatment of his metastatic kidney cancer, and in Chubb's word, he was a goner until he he got that drug. And, uh, and so I use that as an example to just say, you know, it's a long time between McFarlane Burnett's work, between Doty's work, through to some kind of uh, treatment or cure. So to have a vibrant and healthy research in ecosystem, we need to have patience uh, between things that may seem not connected to ultimate um, uh, good outcomes. And just to quote Chubb, um, while I was looking for that photo of him in The Guardian, I found this wonderful quote from an article that he wrote in 2014 uh, for the same newspaper where he said um, that, and he's referring to governments around the world, not the Australian government, but saying that by and large governments have found uh, rather than seeking to mandate conditions, they can do and help create environments in which business researchers and educators are able to perform at their best in a cooperative and co coordinated way. That's the role of government in his view. And so there's a lesson there for us um, that IE Australia, in terms of top performing economies, uh, that, and the sort of the gist of the article is um, that he was challenging a sort of an economic viewpoint that was there in 2013 and 2014, which was, you know, the markets had sought this research out if, if you just left them to it. And I'll come back to that as well. So what does the Australian government do to support Australia's research ecosystem? Well, roughly the investment across all the sectors of the research ecosystem is around $10.3 billion. Of that, around 30% or a bit over 30% goes into the business and business innovation R&D um, sector, around 35% into higher education research, 20 odd percent into the research agencies and defence and 14% into the other category, which ranges from the rural R&D, corporations, health, uh, environment and the CRC program. And that isn't too different to 
uh, what it was when I left Canberra in 2012 when it was about 9.8 billion. It's a bit higher than it was when I entered, went to Canberra in uh, 2007 when it was sitting at around 8 billion. And of that, then it's divided roughly in uh, not quite equal amounts into uh, different schemes that some are based on formula. So at we uh, universities uh, uh, allocated funding based on a formula based on success in other areas. Some are based on an entitlement. So the R&D tax incentive, uh, you invest, you get uh, a formula, um, you know, some funding. Many are targeted, so ARENA, for example, is the Australian Renewable Energy Agency. A lot of what DST is doing increasingly over many years, what CSIRO did and has done is been uh, targeted funding. And then the, the smallest uh, component is uh, competitive funding, which is largely the ARC and, and Australian Research Council and the National Health and Medical Research Council. And within that, about half of that is based on discovery-based research, you know, um, so investigator-driven as opposed to top-down. So of that 10 or so billion dollars, uh, about 10% is feeding the, the sort of discovery end of the research ecosystem. And that looks at what that has done over time. But um, and there were two reasonable size investments into that. Um, in the time that I was a sort of research manager. The first was uh, backing Australia's Ability One in 2001 and another big injection in, in 2004-05. The higher education research uh, performance block grant funding um, has been on the increase as the sector's grown and um, there have been um, some further investments in sustainable research excellence. But the two funding agencies that are feeding that discovery-based uh, research ARC and NHMRC have been pretty well in dollar terms, either stayed the same over that decade or declined slightly. As I said, um, the two um, major investments into the research innovation system that occurred in 2001 and 2004, known as Backing Australia's Ability 1 and 2, came on the back of a, a, a very long narrative and public conversation led by the then chief scientist, the head of the ARC, and a number of key research leaders that Australia was falling behind and that we needed to do something. And that we were there was a big brain drain issue, that we were had no skills in computer science. So NICTA, the National ICT Centre, was funded in that um, period. But there was a general view that we needed to do something. And, and there was a, a lot of goodwill towards uh, uh, encouraging that investment. And then the second tranche um, included funding for CSIRO and the National Collaborative Research Infrastructure Strategy, of which um, has provided a fair amount of the current research infrastructure that's supporting our research effort. This is one of our QUT early career researchers, and uh, I wanted to make the point that another key element of the discovery element of both the ARC and the NHMRC is what we do to support people, and in particular what we do to ensure that we're getting the best talent from around the world as well as uh, retaining talent. And so just one example, the ARC Future Fellowship Scheme, which was funded in my time at the ARC, you can see that about um, uh, that scheme and, and the AR other ARC and NHMRC schemes have similar kind of numbers where you know, a quarter to a third is to fund uh, people resident in Australia, 
a strong push to bring back uh, talented Australians from overseas and around 20 to 25% foreign nationals. And that's, that's healthy. And, you know, if, you, if I look at other schemes, uh, when you go to the earlier career, there's more foreign nationals. When you go to later careers, there's more uh, resident Australians. But these also form a very important part of the discovery scheme. So what's happening now, this looks in, in more detail at university funding, because that's, after all, what I'm primarily interested in at the moment. And you can see that, again, the point that I made that ARC and NHMRC um, funding has been relatively flat. In fact, uh, if you go to the very right hand end, and I can see whether I've got a slide, you can actually see uh, that, that we're starting to see a downturn in, in that as, either money has been carved off for other purposes and also, um, in real terms, the amount of funding going into the ARC and, to a lesser extent, the NHMRC has been declining. So that base of the ecosystem where we're funding good people, where we're funding discovery research, actually uh, will decline. And big decline relative to the size of our research infrastructure and uh, research workforce and our university system, which has been growing much faster. And but part of the reason is there has been historically a narrative in Canberra that flares up every so often that says, you know, this is all a waste of money, this is academics just playing um, games that they're doing, um, think the ARC or is funding things that are not valuable. Um, and, you know, my time in Canberra, I spent a lot of time defending the ARC Centre of Excellence on the History of Emotions. And, and this, is, this is a happens in other countries, but nothing like the extent to which, you know, when I talk to heads of funding agencies around the world, nothing like the extent to which it happens here. Um, and so we've got a few journalists and a few other uh, commentators that have, have fueled this, but part of the reason we, when we start to try and have a conversation about the importance of discovery research, the, the conversation that happens around the cabinet table is, are they just, are those academics just waste the money? That's not true in other jurisdictions. And so, uh, and also it's not, in, in other jurisdictions, it's not necessarily confined to the conservative side of politics, or it's not automatically a, a narrative of the conservative side of politics, which it more often than not is here. And so when the UK recently, over the last several years, has reformed their kind of national innovation system and formed uh, UK Research and Innovation, which brought all the funding councils together and, and uh, along with the higher education infrastructure, when they introduced the legislation into Parliament in the UK to make that change, the minister at the time, Joe Johnson, brother of Boris, recommitted to what is known as the Haldane Principle. And the Haldane Principle is named after a British um, biologist, uh, geneticist, uh, and it, the principle is that the government uh, should not be involved in decisions about individual funding proposals, that scientists and, and researchers and experts should be involved in um, in, in making determinations and, 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 you know, more broadly, there shouldn't be political interference in funding decisions. And there has been here in Australia, um, most notably under Brendan Nelson when Peter Hoy was the head of the ARC, but even just top slicing, say, $40 million off the ARC to give to some other uh, scheme in a marginal, uh, you know, something in a marginal electorate is political interference in the funding scheme. So. And that, so it doesn't happen in Canada, it doesn't happen in the UK, and certainly doesn't happen in the US. 
And other countries notice where, what, we're, what we're doing. So this is an OA, a UNESCO science report that says not only um, is there political interference in, you know, not necessarily there has been political interference in Australia, but the Australian government is really pushing research, um, you know, of relevance to industry and end users. And it's um, important that in doing that, that we don't necessarily hamper our national research effort um, to ensure that science, you know, this, this report says doesn't become a handmaid to the industrial commercial development um, and that we, can, we need to continue to nurture um, science and the solid, you know, the, our institutions to ensure that that doesn't happen. If we look at again what's happening around the world, um, most recently David Naylor, former president of the University of Toronto, did a review into investing, letter review, investing in Canada's future, which has seen the Canadian government reinvest in fundamental research. The Chinese, which for a long time in, you know, 10 or so years ago were only investing in the applied end, have switched very much their investment into uh, basic research and you know that's where the investment's going they recognize that that's um, critical to uh, a vibrant economy going forward so that's the pitch for uh, in continuing to support basic research or fundamental research as part of the ecosystem research infrastructure has done um, pretty well in Australia and, and in that investment um, over a number of years so we often can make a good argument about research infrastructure. We can show it to people, we can open it, we can uh, talk about it. It's been patchy sometimes and often we've got close to a, a knife edge in terms of uh, uh, funding for research infrastructure. So it's great that we've got some funding in the, in the current budget for uh, the national research infrastructure, but there have been times when we got very close to losing key elements of our national infrastructure because of the way that it's funded on a four-year budget cycle in some cases and outside institutions. And the classic, um, I think the example that I lived the most was what happened with the Australian synchrotron. So the Australian synchrotron, um, there was a move that as part of Australia's research infrastructure, we needed a synchrotron. There was a state-based competition between Queensland and Victoria. It was originally then put in Victoria by the, um, uh, the Victorians went ahead and, and in advance of the national process and said, we'll have it and we'll build it. So initially the synchrotron was owned by the, Victoria, the asset was owned by the Victorian government. And they put two commercial boards in to run it and after the first, I think, four or eight years, I'm, I'm looking at Ian to try and remember, everyone said, oh, actually, putting commercial boards in to run these things, they still don't make any money. And, and there sort of was this notion that if you, if, you, if you just got academics or you got researchers out of the way, that you could make money out of infrastructure. You can't, it's an investment. So the synchrotron got very, very, very close to, to um, being closed down, which would have been a national disgrace because it fell in the funding hole of the global financial crisis. There was no institution um, that was running it. There was no mechanism to, to rescue it. So effectively, we, put, uh, we took around the hat uh, of the Australian uh, universities to, um, to support it, and then it was the asset has been transferred to ANSTO, which is the appropriate, it, it's appropriate that something of that scale is run by an institution, uh, one of our national science agencies, and not by a, a commercial board. And so one of the lessons I think out of 
that period of investment in backing Australia's ability one and two is, you know, you, you need to have investment in this. It's not necessarily the case that you can um, make money out of research, certainly not in the short term. Doesn't mean you can't make money out of research and there have been some examples in Australia and um, I, one of them is has been the one that I've been involved in in distributing the funding, not I wasn't involved in the success, and that was uh, from uh, the CSIRO invention of, um, I don't know whether invention's the right term, development of um, the technology for Wi-Fi. And often, and, and the reason I've had some involvement is that is that when the funds that were generated from that invention uh, have been invested in the science industry advisory fund of which Ian mentioned that I'm on the board of. So I've had the joys of distributing some of the funds that came from that. And often, um, and so the, the person shown there is John O'Sullivan. He was a radio astronomer. He was working at CSIRO time and sometimes uh, this invention gets portrayed as the astronomer, someone was looking at black holes and discovered Wi-Fi. It's not quite that simple. Um, uh, in fact, John was working at CSIRO at the time with a, team, a very talented team of individuals. They had been working on radio astronomer. Bob Freider, who was uh, the division head at the time, provided an incentive and said, could you do something practical, guys? Uh, if you could, um, what would you do? And provided some funds and they got together and then said, well, we could maybe tackle this problem of wireless signals bouncing off walls and, and uh, create um, some technology that would ultimately you know, end up in our laptops. That probably would have ended there had not um, there been a group at, uh, at CSIRO, at uh, Macquarie University um, who uh, were working on chip manufacturer and also led by David Skellen and they generated a company called Radiata that did pretty well. And then David was also heavily involved with the standards bodies internationally that meant that this particular wireless technology ended up as uh, one of the standards. But it still probably would have ended there had this been a small company because the only reason that we ultimately got the four or five hundred million out of this um, uh, development is because CSIRO invested in protecting the patent and they spent 14 years protecting that patent and took the um, giant um, IT manufacturers to court in the US in some really weird jurisdiction like some little town in Texas and and so there was an institutional support and and commitment from the CSIRO board and the team to push that through the, to, to, to ultimately realise the value to Australia. And I say that again because there's a sort of, in this startup world, often um, a conversation comes that a researcher says, well, I just give the patent to my little startup and let me get on with it. But often to realise that value, you need an institution behind you to, to develop and exploit the patient and also protect the patent. And you, you know, um, the way that University of Queensland and CSL manage the Gardasil patents has meant that they've been able to re realise value on that. So I think institutions, and particularly institutions with a long view and a long time horizon, are also critical to realising value from our research ecosystem. And the other big investors in the research ecosystem at the moment are Australia's higher education system. So, this is a recent report from the Australian Bureau of Statistics which shows the percentage of 
R&D expenditure that's coming from universities um, themselves. And that's increased in uh, quite dramatically. I mean, it looks like a small percentage, but it's a big increase in terms of GDP over the last 10 years. And that investment is also being influenced by the government's narrative around um, and where they've been putting incentives in terms of applied research. So we're investing more and we're investing more in applied research and less in um, basic research. And I don't, still don't understand after years in Canberra what the difference between pure basic research and strategic basic research is. But, you know, the, the bottom line is here we've gone from 30% of our um, R&D expenditure in universities in applied research to more than 50%. And there's been a rationale for us investing as institutions in research, and the rationale goes like this. We're in, a, we're in a global education business where part of that business is attracting international students. Uh, we've been highly successful at that as we have um, you know, now 23 institutions in the top 500 in the world. That generates more international students that generate more income that allows us to invest back in um, in our research infrastructure and our research performance. And so that's the rationale for doing that and increasing that investment. But I might argue that it's a one where we have to be cautious if our entire national research and development effort is reliant on the international student market. And so that's the canary in the mind, I guess, um, in that, you know, some of the things that have happened in the... Um, you know, it's a, it's a pretty fragile ecosystem if it relies totally on international students. And the other challenge is that uh, where those students are going, by and large, is not where we're making the investments. And so uh, our universities are still, um, our largest proportion are in humanities, arts and social sciences. Um, that's where most of our bachelor's students, both domestically and internationally, are. Uh, yet our investments are also uh, are in other parts of that ecosystem. And the other part of the ecosystem, which I think we have to be careful about, the the balance is the extent to which, notwithstanding the great things that come out of medical research, the extent to which we're investing in medical research versus um, the rest of our research ecosystem because to go back to those uh, students, somebody's got to teach them. And, uh, and they won't be the medical scientists, sadly, unless we retrain them all to teach uh, business and economics. So that's another uh, co concern. So I'm doing well, Ian. I've, uh, I think I've got to about to my time. So this is, I've, I've canvassed a wide spectrum of the research ecosystem, and I could give you a lecture on each one of those topics, and that's not an, uh, <laughs> it's not an invitation to invite me back to each. Um, um, but I'm happy to expand on more and, and, and at other times and in other fora. But so some of the lessons that I've learned from this 20 odd years that I've been in this research uh, leadership role is that uh, whatever we do, we've got to continue to attract and mentor the best talent from around the world, and that doesn't mean that a lot of that talent isn't here already, but we've, we're in a global marketplace. We need to ensure that we're providing the right incentives, that we're not um, we're not putting up barriers and, again, you know, changes to the visa regime that uh, might be designed for one political purpose are going to impact on us here. We need to ensure that we get the balance right between basic and, and short-term funding, uh, basic research and, and strategic uh, long-term research, and we need to connect that to research training. 
we need to recognise and value the role of institutions, and that's not just the higher education institution, that's CSIRO, it's DST, it's ICE in here, it's AIMS and other publicly funded research agencies, and not throw the institutions out with the bathwater when it comes to uh, running uh, infrastructure in particular. It's critical, I think, that, and particularly if we're going to create a conversation around further investment in research, that we recognise and value all of the institutions and elements of this ecosystem. So we'll never have a backing Australia's ability three equivalent if people are going into Canberra and saying, just take the money off the universities and give it to CSIRO. Just take the money off DSTT and give it to us. The CRC committee goes in and says the ARC's got it wrong and vice versa. We've got to recognise that there's a role for all of these institutions, funding agencies and um, in, in encouraging interactions and that collaboration and cooperation builds over time. In everything we do, we need to reduce the transaction costs um, and where we can and not add to that burden by adding more complexity to schemes or infrastructure management than we need to do. And I've finished with the best funding scheme is, um, in, on this slide is, is an old funding scheme because I was at a policy conversation in, in Melbourne uh, uh, two weeks ago and someone came up to me and said, we really need a funding scheme that encourages industry to put in more money um, and, and with thresholds in it that if you put in more money, you get more money. And I said, we have that. It's called the ARC linkage slash industrial transformation scheme where we put incentives in for people to put more money in. So uh, the reinventing the wheel is an issue and I, and I was struck when um, an economist who I don't normally agree with on Q&A said the best tax is an old tax. So I, I, I've adapted that line that the best funding scheme is an old funding scheme. So for Australia's research ecosystem, I think we do start to need to have a national conversation about the elements that need to be supported and with a recognition that like any natural ecosystem, each, each component is important and part of a fragile balance. This is Kerry Mengerson doing some work in an ecosystem in Peru. Uh, so again, uh, fundamental uh, science and mathematics applied to an important problem. We need to ensure that we think about this in the long term and whether it's the long term support of institutions, whether it's longer term support um, for various funding schemes in both infrastructure and R&D project grants um, and people and so on. Uh, to go back to the, I haven't talked about this in great detail, but clarity about who's defining the problems. And so the, the Flory example is obviously, you know, we don't want to have another world war to define a problem, but we do need to be clear about, um, you know, who's defining the problem and where we are doing mission-directed research and not, um, again, thinking about that in the longer term rather than the short term. And we need to be uh, collaborative, intentional and international. And so I'm going to finish uh, with one of my favourite quotes when I get asked um, what's on the national research agenda and I say what I really would like would be for research to be on the national agenda. So thank you. You've been listening to a podcast from the IFE. To stay up to date with our podcasts, please subscribe to our channel. You can also visit us on the web at qut.edu.au forward slash IFE. And we're also on Twitter at IFE underscore QUT and also on Instagram 
at ife.qt. We really hope you enjoyed this IFE podcast.